Welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred, uh, New Zealand's favorite podcast. That's that's the uh, tagline I'm now using. Uh, uh, if I was being more traditional, I would say it's the uh, the independent New Zealand and international politics podcast. But it also is New Zealand's favorite podcast. Uh, don't ask me to substantiate that. I won't do it, and I don't need to. Uh, I have with me here my co-host Philip Nansen. Philip, how are you going? Good, going well, thanks. Um, happy to live up to the moniker. Well, I'll do a quick poll around my house, um, gather some evidence. Yeah, well, I mean, I would hope that that's a, a, like a North Korea-esque election. Right? That should be like 100%. Uh, otherwise, Good I don't time. know. you got to crack some skulls. <laughs> um, obviously, a big uh, week in New Zealand politics. Uh, or maybe not, obviously, if, if you're one of our listeners from, from uh, another country. Um, but uh, New Zealand politics have been sort of shaken up by a series of bullying scandals that are kind of the, 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 the news of the, the week. It's, it's what everyone's talking about. Um, I mean, uh, first of all, there was uh, National MP Sam Uffendale, who it turned out had, um, when he was a 16-year-old at a, a fancy school, uh, had uh, bullied uh, and, in fact, beaten up a younger student um, with an uh, a unscrewed bed leg which is pretty brutal. Um, and then uh, since then, more stuff has come out, not all of it to do with bullying, but just generally with kind of unsavory behavior, uh, including uh, screaming at a, a flatmate and uh, getting drunk and trashing his flat, hanging women's underwear from the walls, really pretty gross stuff. And this is when he was in his university days, not, not when he was a kid. So that was the first one. Um, I mean, uh, before we get to the the Sharma stuff, uh, I you know, I mean, we we didn't get a chance to discuss this particular scandal because it's all just kind of come. But um, I mean, what, what were your thoughts when uh, when all this went down? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of um, conversation about, uh, I guess, the role of um, moving on or making mistakes when you're young and stuff like that. That seems to be how most people are sort of thinking about, like. Um, what should you be able to have done if you look into someone's past? Like how how bad, how seedy is someone? Does someone's past have to be before it should um, rise to a, like an ethical consideration where it should count against somebody's career um, if it happens, you know, twenty years ago? And I think that is that's definitely like a, a healthy lens to look at things through because you know Christopher Luxon said, um, you know, if you know if everyone had to have a pure perfect past to get into politics, no one would be in the um, and the beehive, which is obviously true. But at the same time, I think it does, um, it paints Sam Elfendahl as the perfect kind of entitled Tory because the response that happened after this brutal beating that he perpetrated with a gang of his mates when he was 16 against a 13-year-old in bed at nighttime, <laughs> you know, about as aggravated as you could possibly imagine, the response was being quietly ushered out of that um, private expensive boarding school into a different private expensive boarding school um, in Hamilton. So, you know, not the, not quite the kind of open, fulsome response that you would have hoped for. And then the fact that it took him until last year to apologize to the victim, um, who said that at the time he felt good about the apology, but then when he saw Uffendale get into politics, he thought, ah, that's why he apologized. That was nine months before the election. Right. Um, and he was already involved in the national party and working in politics essentially. So yeah, I mean there are there are levels of, of cynicism you can you can get to, I suppose, but there's there's no there's no way in which he comes out of it looking like a, a good person. 
and also like the more, the more concerning, I guess, systemic part of it is that na nationals had this kind of culture of bullying for a decade, let's say. Um, we've had this series of really awful, unsavory people, again, to different standards, like some really cruel, um, misogynistic um, individuals, the Jamie Lee Rosses, Jake Pizant, who wasn't quite an MP, but was a candidate a couple of times. Um, and then also, um, you know, maybe lower on the scale, but very unpleasant kind of stuff. Back to Aaron Gilmore, like the Do You Know Who I Am guy. <laughs> <laughs> do You Know yeah, Who I Am know. Is, uh, was one of the great, the great moments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then also Andrew Falloon, um, Hamish Walker. There's been this like long series. Uh, who was the young guy from Southland who worked for Bill English? Who oh. leaked? Recorded conversations from his staffers. Yeah. I, I've, the name is escaping me right now because that feels like a lifetime ago. But um, yeah, it, I want to say he was one of the Todds. Uh, yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, it's also uh, it, how many scandals have there been now in New Zealand politics involving someone surreptitiously recording someone else? I mean, like, yeah, there's a, at least what three or four over the past, uh, I don't know, three, four or five years. It's like almost one a year. Uh, that's. <laughs> It, it makes you wonder why does anyone talk to anyone in politics? Like, <laughs> you should, should be. It shows. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I I agree. I mean, it's obviously a really gross and and and, and awful thing that he uh, did. Uh, you know, I I do think that we should be uh, uh, those of us on the left should be careful uh, around falling into the kind of uh, uh, trap or the kind of discourse that that people on the right like, which is that you know we should be ultra punitive and and hold people to you know, to the standards um, of, you know, if they, if they did something when they were kids and, you know, teenagers as a, as a, as a child uh, that, you know, they, somebody should, should pay for that for the rest of their lives. I do think with, with Afendal, the opportunism of his apology and the fact that clearly there is a, a pattern that extends well beyond his childhood, I think that makes us a little bit, uh, not a little bit, makes it quite a bit different. Um, uh, and I think also the other thing, uh, uh, separate from, you know, whatever moral accounting of, of Uffendal. I mean, uh, the, the rank hypocrisy, and obviously this is not a new thing to point out, but the rank hypocrisy of, of national grandstanding on uh, crime and being tough on crime and, oh, this government is too soft on crime. And that's why there's this, uh, by the way, non-existent spike in crime. There, there was a, a spike in uh, reporting of crime. Uh, in reality, the you know the, the actual crime figures were, were uh, uh, lower than they've ever been historically. But um, uh, yeah, grandstanding on that, uh, and also you know making a huge issue out of out of the the ram raids. You know where in that case it was um, uh, young brown kids. You know uh, doing violent crime. You know stuff that's really awful and and, and terrible. You know just as Uffendals. Um, but of course, uh, unlike uh, with Afendal, uh, National is not as willing to, to, you know, look past those things or, or, or you know, try and find a, a less punitive way to deal with this kind of misbehavior. No, for them, this was, oh, you know, we're, we're not being uh, hard enough on these offenders and we have to throw the book at them, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, they knew about this incident from when he was 16 this, the entire time and they, yeah. and they looked past it. And I so I think that that element of it is um, particularly damning. I think for the for the party beyond just the figure of, of Uffendal, the fact that you know they would make this such an issue for themselves, and they then they have for years. Meanwhile, you know that the, their own house is not nearly in order. 
yeah yeah it's it's real one law for rich one law for poor type stuff mm. right but you're right like we on the on the left more kind of inclusive understanding of politics need to think um what crimes should be forgivable to have committed before moving into a public position in this way um and if you think of this as uh youth offender um assault quite kind of bad assault um which is what this was right then you have to think, well, who are the majority of people who are convicted com- convicted of assaults or you know accused of assaults as teenagers? Um, and that's not going to look good for um, populations we w- might want to see more of in politics. You know, it's younger people, it's poor poor, poor people, browner people, um, more disenfranchised get accused and convicted of stuff substantially more, which you know is partly because of this kind of response that a rich private school can just usher someone away. You know, he never even got convicted of a crime technically to the point that um, when Chris Luxon was asked about it, he he said, uh, oh, he was asked about the difference between this and Materia Ture's um, convict, or, you know, accusation. Um, and he said, well, the difference is that Materia committed a crime. <laughs> and the, the reporters sort of had to say, well, how would you define assault, Chris Luxon? Like, yeah, well, no, I mean, uh, beating, beating someone with a bloody uh, bed leg is totally, <laughs> no, no law against that, I, I don't believe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> find me the one, find me the spot in New Zealand's <laughs> criminal code where they say that specifically unscrewing the, the leg of your bed, sneaking into a guy's room in the middle of the night and hitting him with it, is specifically a crime. You won't find it. Yeah, it does say guns, bats, and knives, but it doesn't say bed leg here anywhere. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there you go. This is, He was a classic politician from, from even his teenage years, finding the loopholes through which he could uh, <laughs> sort yeah. of go through. It's perfectly into that understanding of the party, right? So I think that's that's the way in which it's damaging for national. Like, he's a, he's a lowly ranked kind of backbench MP. He wasn't going to do anything this term. He won't get selected again next time. So I suspect they can just kind of let him hang, <laughs> uh, doing an investigation. Um, and if they just kind of isolate him and leave him until the election, he'll get replaced with someone less damaging. And I don't think it'll be a big kind of scandal unless Christopher Luxon keeps messing up a response to it, which so far he hasn't done particularly badly. He says he wasn't told and Nicola Willis wasn't told by the party. So that's obviously like a, a party failing after the party saying they've done this big investigation and changed their culture and been really careful mm. about selections. And remember, there was that fuss in Tauranga that all the four candidates were white men who they wanted to select, and they were all wearing blue suits in the photo, and it was just, you know, 3D-printed, identical, or cookie-cutter, <laughs> right? all with the same backgrounds. Um, and then, sure enough, they picked one of them. Turns out he's probably a cynical, violent bully. Um, so, yeah, not, not great for their claim to have, you know, rejuvenated their selection processes to solve their problem. Yeah, well, and, and you, you called it a party failing that that, that Luxon wasn't uh, informed. But you know, one other way, if you if you're more cynical, uh, you could say that that was a, a party success. That you know, the, a system of basically keeping the leader insulated uh, from from any potential scandal uh, worked. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I, that's a, that's a bit of uh, rank speculation on my part. So you know, uh, you can strike that one for the record from the record if, if you so prefer. Uh, yeah, so yeah, very embarrassing, very bad, very damaging for the party, obviously, and and obviously, I think Labour was uh, uh, enjoying, or at least uh, you know, not too fast picking up the newspaper for a while and reading some of these headlines. Uh, that is until uh, this week when Labour was uh, became mired in its own bullying scandal uh, with a backbench MP, uh, Gaurav uh, Sharma, coming forward. 
saying that there was a culture of bullying in the in the party and actually not just not really just the party just in parliament in, in general um and uh you know since then he's come out with a few other facebook posts making uh, more detailed allegations not naming any names but but saying basically you know there was a particular minister who was really bad and so on and so forth uh so now you know the tables have turned slightly you you got uh as the news cycle goes the the old scandal is forgotten and now people are focused on this one national's probably you know feeling a little relieved that uh at this point you know labor can't score as many points on them over this and you know i'm sure the labor party is not is not happy to now have a new cycle dealing with this and it looks like it's um hasn't gotten much better i mean he's he's now going to get expelled from the party it looks like he's going to be a, a thorn in their side making various allegations um but i guess you know to deal with the the substance of it i mean you know I'll, i'm not surprised at this uh we uh we we saw with you know you mentioned a bunch of these bullying scandals we also had the the nick smith uh example uh that wasn't that long ago i mean uh, unfortunately that this is the least surprising thing in the world uh, people in power and and hierarchies both of those things tend to uh engender a certain kind of treatment of people uh by people at the top particularly in, in uh, high stress jobs as, as mps are uh, I think it's significant that Sharma himself has been now accused uh, by someone of of, um, be, of bullying his staff as well. I mean, you know, I'm 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 kind of laughing because it's a little absurd. It's not it's not funny. It's it's really ugly stuff. But I think it does point to an unfortunate culture um, uh, in Parliament. But I think it's not just Parliament. You know, I think it would be wrong to just believe this is just a politics thing. I think this is a problem that goes to all uh, all workplaces, you know, whatever they are. Yeah, absolutely, especially with high-powered people in them, as you say. Um, and lots of people who work in Parliament come out saying, oh, the culture's pretty nasty, like bullying's quite expected, there's a lot of overreach and what people expect you to do. Um, I mean, there was this other... There was another MP, was it Anna Lork, whose staffer has come out saying that she bullied her recently, another new backbench Labour MP. Um, but her accusations of quote-unquote bullying were pretty, uh, I wouldn't say that they were bullying unless it, sound, unless it was a lot worse than it sounded. It was like, um, oh, she drank too much at, a, at an event and told me to drive her home. Um, and also that she had asked her to rearrange the furniture in her office, which, I mean, sure, it's beyond the technical uh job description that you've taken up but it seems like pretty kind of reasonable stuff to me i wouldn't say that was bullying unless she's unaccountably a nasty person while doing it yeah i'm gonna have to hear a little more uh stuff to to, to qualify as bullying i mean if that was some sort the, of reprisal maybe the, the problem with talking about bullying right is that it's such a subjective term it's not um you know if you can talk about explicit examples like um you know and sam Uff uffendale in the past where he was shouting at his flatmate and making her feel unsafe and smashing up the flat like that's pretty clearly like intimidatory nasty behavior but yeah Sharma seems to have been like quite deliberately um obfuscating what what was actually happening that he classed as bullying and then the more that comes out the more it seems like it was mostly Kieran McAnulty um as whip doing his job <laughs> and kind of corralling him and making him do stuff there's a certain amount of coercion that comes with that job right mm -hmm. um and if if people who aren't used to following those instructions in that kind of context hear that, I imagine a lot of people feel bullied by whips and probably every party. It's a, it's a bullying position. Um, and as yeah, much as like a manic <laughs> bullying position, you, you have control over 
those people. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the job description. It's literally called the whip. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, there was, this, is, this is the tough thing. This is where it comes down to. It's a fine line between, you know, aggressively whipping and then actual bullying. And, you know, if you'd ask me what where where's the line i don't know i i honestly am I'm not sure i mean i i like to think you know behind the scenes of one of 200 i don't think we're we're like yelling at anyone and uh, you know like forcing them to do uh shows and all this kind of stuff but um you know uh in a in a, a very high stress high powered uh position like MP, and you, you know where you have to get people to vote a certain way you're obviously going to be going beyond kind of some of the the normal uh, um, uh, limits of, of human interpersonal relationships to get people to to do what the what's what's best for the party for the government. Um, when does that cross the line into into you know unacceptable bullying? Um, I don't think there's some sort of magic list of things. I don't you know I think it's going to be one of those things where it comes down to seeing it and 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 feeling how you feel about it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's real. You know it when you see it. Stuff right. That's yeah. Really- line that we have and there are a few things about parliament i mean as you say like it isn't constrained to parliament there are big corporate organizations big government organizations where there's rife bullying as well um that occasionally comes out remember the stuff around um harassment and big law firms that came out a few years Mm -hmm. ago um post me too but yeah so i mean there are these big cultures that develop their own kind of um secretive mechanisms of control and and that can look quite nasty but there are a few things about parliament and government and politics as as an institution, I suppose, that sets it apart. And one of them is this kind of optics stuff is that Mm. their jobs really depend on whether they look good or not to a greater degree than other um, organizations, right? The prime minister can't um, fire an MP and an electorate MP, at least in the same way as a boss can make someone go away from an organization. Mm. Um, So, you know, Sharma technically works for the people of, Hamilton West, that's his, that's his boss. So the, his kind of KPIs technically should be keeping them happy. So, um, you know, even, even in a perfectly kind of cynical understanding of politics, that's, that's still who he's responsive to. So in the same way as Jacinda needs to worry about what people think. So these accusations of bullying kind of carry heft in a way that in a big law firm, for example, they don't necessarily, you can say, well, this person's not popular, but he's good at his job. Whereas being popular is being good at your job in politics, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, and, and also, yeah, one of the things I, I uh, kind of annoyed me about Shama's uh, initial op-ed, I, th- I think it was in, in his first op-ed they wrote, uh, is saying, oh, you know, well, look, if I was in the private sector, you know, this would, you know, the CEO would be gone the, and, the, and the, the vice would be gone, all this stuff. It's like, no, 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 what are you talking about? I mean, anyone who's worked a day in their life knows that uh, bullies get away with all kinds of terrible behavior in all kinds of workplaces, whether in, in the public sector or the private sector. Uh, the law firm thing was a good example. I mean, just think about the, the rampant abuse that, that happens to, to low-wage workers, migrant workers, whose uh, immigration status is, is used uh, as a way to basically control them and to, to exploit them. I mean, the idea that, yeah, oh, in the private sector, this, this would never happen. I mean, that's that's just completely absurd. But whatever, you know, it's a bit of political rhetoric, I guess, that he was using. You know, I, I guess one thing that, that we haven't discussed is uh, uh, taking aside all the kind of ethical and moral considerations, you know, what, what does this mean for 
the, the Labour, you know, what does it mean for the Labour government? Obviously, Jacinda Ardern has put a big premium on this this kindness brand that that uh, she and 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 her staff have kind of used to 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 um, associate with her. Uh, and and the government, and, you know, in in my thinking, to me that brand was tarnished a long time ago. Uh, given how lackluster the government has actually been in terms of tackling poverty and 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 all manner of other crises, so to me, you know, I I did have not really taken that seriously for a while. But the thing is, most people do not look at politics the way I look at it, and I don't think a lot of people connect Jacinda Ardern's personal niceness and kindness to the policies of, of her government, you know what I mean? But in this case, I mean, he, Sharma really seems to be taking a direct aim at this brand. I mean, you know, he's repeatedly kind of said, uh, oh, you know, she talks a lot about kindness and there's no kindness behind the scenes. So I'm, I don't know, what do you think about how this is gonna resonate uh, with, the, uh, with the public? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, in the same way as with the uh, Sam Uffendale story with National, it's not so much about the individual, right? Because he, there's him losing him isn't going to make a difference it'll probably unify the labor party a bit <laughs> they don't need him um and he seems to be leaking as kind of tactically as he can as damagingly as he can um at the moment just straight to social media um but yeah as you say that's he's kind of aiming at the strength right to try to um diminish that in in quite a spectacular way but also i mean I can't I can't see it getting very far unless it links to other mistakes or in the same way as Chris Luxon has done a pretty good job on being on the defensive. Um, Jacinda so far seems to have done a reasonably good job um, covering this off. And it's it's more about giving the leaders opportunity to, to make mistakes rather than inflicting damage on their own. I think these individuals, I mean, just think how many of these we went through with Key um, mm. and he just kind of flipped passed every time and said oh this individual's made mistakes and then more stuff would come out and he'd take action and look prime ministerial because i think jacinda's more than capable of the same kind of um almost performative leadership reactions um that makes people remember oh yeah she's a good kind of competent leader and seems like a nice person i think it was a bit of a slip that she started off by responding in a kindness mode because she was saying um oh our main concern is for Sharma's well-being um which you know that is it's has, has almost like nasty insinuation of maybe mental health issues or personal crises or something without saying it which I thought was a bit unpleasant mm-hmm. um and then then she had to flip into well the caucus don't trust him because they don't invite him to this meeting that they secretly had because they thought he would leak it which of course he did immediately <laughs> it turns out that three staffers have um being moved on from his office and he was told he couldn't hire any more staffers pr- presumably because he's not the nicest guy to work for so i don't know if that was the right gear to engage to start with in this um response but yeah i mean so far she's done perfectly well and i don't think this on its own will harm any polls the same as the uffendale thing mm. yeah i guess he's he's trying to kind of turn it into a wider scandal like a, a scandal bigger than just what it is uh he's now saying that you know I, here's all this evidence that uh labor you know had this policy or rather the government has a policy to to avoid uh being oia'd or to avoid saying anything that could be damaging if it's oia'd which yeah is is 
terrible and obviously not good. But also, I mean, you know, like it wasn't that long ago that John Key was in office being like, oh, yeah, sometimes we'll <laughs> we'll delay releasing an, an OIA if it's politically uh, convenient or politically inconvenient. You know, just saying it out loud. So, you know, it's, this is not exactly a new uh, uh, thing in, in New Zealand politics. It's not exactly like groundbreaking stuff. I think we all know that um, governments like to uh, screw around with, with OIAs and delay and do whatever they can, or, you know, the opposite, if it, if it happens to work for them, you know, speed up the release of certain things. Um, you know, yeah, I, I can't imagine that that being a massive um uh, uh, thing for the for the public although i do think it's you know it it, it maybe for the rest of us should be a um uh, a good example of why that whole system maybe needs some more uh, reform and beefing up uh if you know we're getting just periodically uh cases of, mul of, of multiple governments across party lines basically um admitting that or, or, or you know revealing that they kind of like do do some shenanigans with this stuff you know, it is kind of important. Yeah. Transparency is a, is a good thing in government. And this, and this government did claim to want to be transparent. It was one of the mm. things that they were explicitly um, championing and, you know, saying that they were going to change, and they absolutely haven't. I mean, <laughs> a lot of journalists are saying that it's harder now than it used to be to get information out of these people. So, yeah, I mean, if, if that can be spun into a narrative of um, hiding stuff and not, not talking to people and not admitting what they're actually doing behind the, the scenes, then maybe it would it could become something but yeah it's i mean it's not a story in the same way as a substantive story right as something actually happening outside of of parliament and i don't think most kind of you know everyday human on the street types the clapham omnivoter i suppose um i don't know if they care what happens in parliament at all like you know mm. these people are all making six figures they're very comfortably <laughs> off if someone's getting bullied it's going to be a cleaner um mm. in parliament that they that they should care about and that's that's appropriate, right? So probably Sharma's staffers are the people that Jacinda should have said, um, we need to care about the well-being of first and foremost. Um, but she didn't. <laughs> you know, kindest government, um, and we have more people in poverty, uh, most transparent government, and OIAs are even harder to get through and they're deliberately not writing things down. But yeah, I mean, if journalists hadn't turned on those things before, I don't think this will change anything, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I, I agree. But anyway, enough about that. I'm sure this will be a uh, an ongoing and developing story for a while. We'll see. We'll see how much damage Sharma uh, can do, or at least attempt to do, um, uh, uh, to the government in the coming days. Uh, good, luck. good luck to him, I say. Um, God, I've come on one or two hundred. Well, everything to us. We'll, we'll really, uh, put it out there. Yeah, why do all these Facebook posts? You have a perfectly good uh, muckraking uh, uh, news outlet right here that you could you could deploy for maximum damage. Uh, you yeah, know, as, as always, to anyone who has any uh, uh, you know uh, uh, newsworthy and and important scoops uh, that are actually motivated by just um, your own personal grudges and private animus. Uh, please come to one of 200. We'll, if it's actually an important issue, we will definitely let you just hear yeah, your daily laundry. And if you have all, evidence, all politics is um, animated by animus and people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fundamentally, so who are we to draw a line about where yeah. it stops? Well, exactly. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, one, one of the most important things about journalism is that pers the personal motives of whoever's giving you something important, an important piece of information, is the least relevant thing in the world. 
The only way, <laughs> the only thing that's relevant about it is just that uh, it led them to to give you to leak something to you. Uh, beyond that, it doesn't really matter. Aside from maybe you know having to be extra careful, maybe you don't want to fall into some sort of trap of you know that they're feeding you something false. Anyway, enough about that. We'll see what <laughs> happens. Uh, other stuff that's happened. Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, the horrible uh, flooding on the West Coast that we've seen over the last couple of days. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, it's, it's there has been a pretty constant stream of these uh, headlines around flooding um, in the West Coast, but elsewhere too, uh, over the past, you know, few years. Uh, it, it happens every time we see these horrible images people being evacuated, people's houses being ruined, all this stuff. And we go, oh God, you know, this is, this should be a wake up call as it should be. Um, it's, it's a, it's much like those terrible fires in Europe that we saw um, uh, when they were having summer over there. Uh, it, it, much like the fires that we've seen in the United States and Australia that, you know, devastated uh, those parts of those countries. Uh, all of this should be a wake-up call um, about the, the reality of climate change, about the fact that this is not some sort of, oh, it's just it's going to get a little bit hotter during the summer. No, it's it's going to cause chaos and destruction in people's lives, and it's going to cost the government a lot of money to deal with. Um, it should be a wake-up call. Whether it will be or whether we'll just kind of move on from this and until the next disaster, uh, I don't know. But um, it is tremendously sad to see, and... Um, I know. I I hope that it it spurs some sort of you know more concerted government action uh, on on the issue of the climate crisis. Yeah, a hundred percent. People are talking about um, adaptation versus mitigation and all these kind of things, which that would have been a great conversation to have like forty years ago. Um, it's a bit late for that now. We obviously need to do both as as hard mm. as we can. Um, but yeah, yeah, exactly. We can only hope that people start taking it seriously. I mean. After the Australian fires, I thought we'd see a kind of sea change in public opinion because there's not much more obvious than the literal sky changing colour um, in response <laughs> to a huge disaster um, happening in a way that's directly tied to climate change, right? Mm. Um, anthropogenic, like human-caused natural disaster that you can see with your own eyes um, in a very dystopic, uh, hellish kind of way. And yet... That didn't seem to change public opinion all that much from what I can see. Um, it's it's wild that these things can come and go and people kind of put them back to the back of their mind again. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it's it's flooding that's uh, affecting a, a, a fairly rural part of the South Island. Um, so for a lot of New Zealanders, I mean, you know, particularly in, in places like Auckland and Wellington, it's kind of like, oh, that's too bad. Um, I'll just keep living my life. I mean, it, it, it's dispersing the idea that that you need to have something personally affect you to to get a sense of the gravity of it. Um, uh, but but I guess that that is part of it. Um, but it is a good reminder, you know, that it wasn't that long ago that we talked about the lackluster uh, record, the climate record of, of this government and, and you know, the, the Greens leader, James Shaw, um, who was the climate change minister. And this is the result. I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying that if, if we had done more aggressive stuff in the last couple of years that this flooding would have happened. Of course not. But, I mean, this this is just a preview. This is just a taste of the kind of thing we're going to be dealing with. Um, in the in the coming years and decades, it's going to be. I mean, we're going to look back on this and go, oh, you know, um, one one terrible 
flooding event a year. Um, oh, that, that, that show was a, a nice period of, of history. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it shows you, uh, we talked about all these commentators and these pundits kind of basically dismissing criticism of Shaw and the, and the government and, you know, basically saying like, oh, well, look, politics is the art of, of the possible and you have to compromise. And, and James Shaw is actually doing really good work um, by constantly outsourcing climate policy to uh, the farming sector. Um, and actually, it turns out, no, it's that's not good enough. Actually, there's a real reason why people should be unhappy about uh, the lackluster uh, uh, record of this government and, and of James Shaw on the climate, because it turns out that the result is people's bloody houses being destroyed and people haven't evacuated uh, where they've lived for, you know, God knows how long. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's going to be a bill for this damage, right? They're going to mm. say, oh God, you know, we need um, $1.5 billion to clean up this bit of infrastructure. I mean, what what price on um, prevention, right? If we had mm. spent that money um, 10, 20 years ago to ameliorate this stuff, then we'd be saving money in the long in the long term and that's what we're doing now every dollar we're spending on um mitigation and adaptation measures now that's going to save us money in 20 years 30 years 50 years so yeah it's just a real lack of long-term long-term thinking and which is the responsibility of the government right yeah no it's a it, it's a uh, fake form of fiscal conservatism it's the idea that oh we're being uh, we're being very uh fiscally responsible here we're not spending any money um and therefore you know the, the we're, we're, we're keeping the budget all, all the all the books are in line all that and in reality it's it's the exact opposite it's, it's incredibly fiscally irresponsible uh to, it, it would be i mean think about your house if you just delay endlessly fixing i don't know um a bit of rust in your, your your gutters your roof gutters or like you know a mold in the corner of one of your rooms you know it's like ah oh, it's it's gonna cost a lot of money i'll just i'll just leave it for now there's no it's not that bad down the line that's gonna uh balloon and get so much worse and you're gonna have way bigger problems uh and way more expensive problems um and so really i mean it's what it is is it's it's procrastination and and irresponsibility masquerading as a sort of uh, fiscal kind of uh, sensibleness. It, it's very ridiculous. Which is, which is always what fiscal responsibility comes down to, right? It's mm. this kind of um, misunderstanding of resource allocation, I suppose. People going, which, you know, they, they jump from the perfectly um, cromulent <laughs> <laughs> realization that uh, you only have a certain amount of stuff. You know, you can't do everything at once. There's scarcity exists in some capacity, sure. And then they leap from that to therefore there's this correct amount, right? There's this this zero line that means beyond there is irresponsible. Um, borrowing's bad, taking on uh, debt is is bad out of some kind of ethical constraint, which is just mm. yeah. I mean it's it's ahistorical and look at what it's kind of bought us because there are these exter external externalities, environment and in people and in um well diseases <laughs> mm. things that around the world we're really feeling that could have been um prevented significantly earlier yeah you're gonna have to pay a big bill at some point and the question yeah. is do you pay a slightly smaller one now and avoid a way bigger one later on or do you uh go oh a future me will deal with it and by future me i mean some other person in this position and a whole other group of political leaders that aren't going to be me i'm going to be in a, in, a, in a tropical island having a holiday or something 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, you're going to have to pay it at, at some point. The question is, are you going to do a smart thing and, and be prudent and do it now, or you know just um, let disaster take hold? But uh, I guess that, that brings us to the, the final topic that we're going to cover um, uh, today, which is uh, at the same time that, that all this chaos is happening because of these um, this flooding, this climate change induced flooding. Uh, you got the uh, firefighters uh, launching an unprecedented uh, strike uh, over two days, uh, one hour each time. Um, so, you know, it's not a, I think the, the the bosses have tried to kind of paint this as, you know, this very reckless or responsible thing that they're putting people's lives in danger, so on and so forth. I would say it's a pretty um, minimalist conservative strike that is more just meant to, highlight the gravity of the um, grievances that the firefighters have you know again one hour i'm not saying that it's not not that's nothing it, it's definitely going to be uh potentially risky you know and and the firefighters recognize that they've said to people you know be extra vigilant during this time they're, they're aware that you know shit can happen any time of day even for an hour um, but I think th the fact that it's so limited shows that, you know, this is, if anything, more of a cry for help, uh, you know, by them to say, hey, shake you by the shoulders. This is not on. We're dealing with a lot here and it's going to be really bad if, if, if um, our demands aren't, aren't listened to. I mean, I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Philip? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, an, hour, an hour for two days seems pretty um, gentle, as you say. They could have cut whole shifts or... You know, that's that's the power the workers have is they can withdraw their labor. Um, so, you know, you have to expect them to use that power when they're not getting what they need. And yeah, I mean, the vast majority of firefighters in New Zealand are volunteers. They'll still be um, putting out fires. So there's still a crew there, um, but it's basically just yeah downgrading the stuff that they'll be responding to and the amount that they'll be able to respond to it. Um, but that's I mean, that's the strike in itself. Right. That's what people like to talk about to avoid the actual issue, which is about how badly they've been treated and it mm. seems like there's been this ongoing um issue with being unwilling to replace equipment um being overworked tired not trained properly um there are i saw somewhere that there are they have boots that are doing giving them injuries when they climb stairs mm. which is a reasonably important thing for firefighters to be able to do um so <laughs> it seems like you'd think equipment for firefighters would be pretty high up the list in a labor government's spending plan um, and who knows, the, the Labour government might respond to this well. It seems like a good kind of opportunity to, for them to get some good optics and get back on side with workers in quite a limited capacity that, to be honest, is probably not that expensive. Mm. Um, so it seems wise for them to jump on, jump onto this and sympathise. And they can blame it on the sector to some extent because there's this internal body that makes these funding decisions. Um, so they could replace some people or, you know, have a quick inquiry and sort it out. But let's hope they do, right? This is this is similar to when the nurses started striking and, and again, quite a, a limited way because they recognize the importance of what they do. That's why you become a firefighter or a nurse. Mm. Um, so they're, they're very careful and considered about what, what will do the least damage to people whilst making the most noise. Mm. But then if, they, if their demands aren't met, that could potentially spiral and become a big issue. And we need our firefighters, as we were saying before, you know, what comes after the flooding in the winter is going to be the fires in the summer. So if this isn't sorted out by, by summer, that would be a nasty um, kind of confluence of events, potentially. Yeah. And I think also, you know, for anyone who's, who wants to kind of rush to condemn uh, uh, the firefighters for doing this, I mean, I think you should also recognize that, yes, are they, are they 
demanding higher pay and better work conditions absolutely of course um which is which is uh, absolutely important but also uh, they are motivated by the fact that deteriorating conditions in their workplaces mean that it actually makes the rest of us less safe. I mean, the, you know, there's been, you can find tons of reports of fire trucks breaking down, you know, staff shortages in terms of um, the, the emergency staff that, that, you know, respond to calls, uh, staff shortages among the actual firefighters, you know, who are working crazy hours uh, every single week. And, and, you know, I mean, a firefighter who is overworked, uh is is not a good thing you want if somebody's going to be going into a dangerous situation you want them to be at the peak physical and mental condition uh and also dealing with you know trauma and and, and seeing all sorts of horrible things so all of this is for our benefit and, they're, and they're, they're making that very clear they're saying look i mean we can't keep working like this this is really this is really bad something's going to happen if equipment is falling apart when you're trying to save someone from a burning body building that that's not a good thing so we should all be supporting uh uh their efforts here and you know hopefully hopefully the government will will as you say recognize what is uh right and and actually follow through on that uh and uh th that's actually it for for this week um a bit of a bite-sized episode this time uh but uh, we will be back next week as we always are in the meantime uh i'm gonna uh, skip um the uh calls to to you know give us the give us a few bucks and share and subscribe and so on and so forth if you want to do that you can but you know spare thought for both the firefighters and some of these people on the west coast who have had to, to abandon their homes um, you know, give them some money as well. Make sure that they're uh, well protected, that they get through whatever uh, they're going through right now. Um, and in the meantime, we will catch you uh, next week. Until then, this is another one of 200 episodes. Kia ora. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your 